As was mentioned earlier, we certainly appreciate the opportunity we have this evening, the privilege that has been given to each of us to assemble and to gather like this, for truly it is a remarkable and wonderful idea indeed to be able to express our appreciation and gratitude to the God who made us and who in fact has given us breath and life and that with us all things are well. And tonight, as perhaps we prepare to make a study of that passage or that text that Brother Eddie read a few moments earlier, taken from the fifth chapter of Ezekiel, I've entitled that particular lesson, How Bad Could It Get? And it was my hope, perhaps, that in the choice of that title, we might perhaps wonder what would be a subject that would follow from a title like that. And tonight, as we look at some of the things found in the opening chapters of Ezekiel, I think we'll be reminded about the carefulness and the strength of even portions to be found in the Old Testament of the Word of God. Perhaps at this particular point, we might take just a moment and take note of one of the comments that I had made, I think is the very last Sunday in the previous year, 2009. I had mentioned that during the course of this year, we would make it our goal to also consider some of the books of the Bible in series of lessons as we had done in the past. In the past, we have worked our way through the book of Colossians, for example, as well as the book of Revelation, and in addition, one Old Testament book, that of Nahum. It will be my hope that we'll be able to start next Sunday evening another one of those kinds of series, and as I mentioned last time, or at least in that lesson in December, I'd like to forewarn the congregation so that you can be reading ahead and making preparation to perhaps glean the maximum amount from that particular study of one of the books of the Bible. If it be the will of God, then next Sunday evening, we'll turn our attention to another New Testament book, and this one I've decided we might do well to give some thought to the book of Hebrews. So we'll begin a series of lessons on the marvelous and scintillating 13 chapters of the book of Hebrews. It has often been called, by the way, the gem of the Bible, G-E-M, of course. And so as we turn our attention to that book, we'll find an imperative need to often refer to and look at both Old Testament prophecy as well as New Testament reality. And it'll be my hope, just as God has intended it, that by the time we come to the close of that series we'll have a far better appreciation for the glory that is due to our blessed Savior, the Son of God. How bad could it get? Some introductory thoughts about this lesson tonight might certainly serve us well, because I suspect each of us can well say a hearty amen to some of the opening thoughts that I believe would be in order. Doesn't it so often seem to be the case that we humans have some rather well-noted tendencies not the least of which would be those four I've listed there on that screen. We can seemingly forget so quickly when there perhaps were at times lessons that so easily should have been learned, situations that happened due to something and yet not many years passed before we seemingly have forgotten and perhaps so quickly can fall into the very same trap that we were in before. In addition to that, we sometimes can lose sight of the grandness of lessons that were once appreciated. Whether it be due to indifference or apathy, we lapse right back in to a similar kind of lifestyle that we once had. And as if all that isn't enough, to compound the problem, we seemingly are too quick to overestimate our own abilities and our capabilities. I think that I can handle it, and I feel not the over 
pressing need to be concerned about the dramatic situation and perhaps that I might fall succumb to something that, that might do me great harm. Isn't it true when one gives some thought to that overestimation? Perhaps for the human family, not many would rival the scene that occurred in 1912, would it? Maybe you've already appreciated what took place that year. It was in April that a ship set sail that was claimed to be unsinkable. It was the Titanic. And in April of that year, down she went, carrying so many to her grave. You see, the ship was sinkable. Men estimated that they had been able to construct and to build an ocean-going vessel. And certainly she was a grand matter to be sure, but yet she was not unsinkable. And so often, maybe in our lives, we can be ever so quick to think that we are undefeatable and that we are personally unsinkable. You'll notice we also sometimes can fail to see in clearness that which is directly set before us. All of those things are not meant to be an insult to the human family. They're matter, in fact, related to what the Bible tells us to ever be on guard with respect to. And so it is tonight, it is with those thoughts in mind, we ask the question, how bad could it get? As we start the lesson based on the book of Ezekiel, at least some of the opening chapters to be found in it, I'd like to preface that by, in fact, calling to our attention some of the things with respect to the nation in which you and I now dwell, this United States of America. And I've entitled this portion of the lesson, as you'll notice at the top, The Way It Appears. With respect to our nation, our, our very cherished and highly regarded United States of America, there is no question or doubt that this nation has been the dominant superpower on the planet now for roughly about seven decades, I would say, when the Second World War reached its conclusion. And so many of the other nations of the world had been devastated by that war, not the least of which were Germany, England, and Japan. The United States ascended the role of the superpower and has maintained it ever since. In light of that, you and I have enjoyed so many grand blessings that perhaps are noted and emphasized by some of these numbers. In terms of financial strength, who would argue that our economy is the one that seems so potent and powerful and mighty to the tune of the fact that in a recent year the gross national product of our nation was over $13 trillion? If you go one step further than that and take note of the gross national income, it was just a tad short of $10 trillion. Quite likely it's difficult for you and for me to imagine what a trillion dollars is even like. It is so much money. And yet notice the figures, and by the way, those rank the United States of America as at this point by far the strongest economy on earth. Other nations, though there may be more people at times, our economy is still the leading one with respect to financial prowess and strength. As if that weren't enough, consider the military considerations of the land in which you and I dwell. You and I are such that our economy is emphasized, or at least is such that the funds that are pushed into it, the part of our national economy that is used to, to in fact provide for it, is now to the tune of over $500 billion annually. Furthermore, you'll notice that we now have in stockpile well over 16,000 tanks. Furthermore, amongst the things that are our military weapons, they number over 38 million. And as if that isn't enough, 
In terms of the nuclear warheads, they number approximately 20,000 at this point. Far more than enough to destroy all that is the surface of this planet. Certainly there are other nations, such as Russia, that also have a fair amount. But again, our military might and prowess is still ranked as number one in the world. As one turns one's attention to the social aspects of our country, we are still hailed as the melting pot of the world. We gladly will accept any and all, legal or not, and quite often as we give thought to matters like that, we still are considered a high in rank to that consideration of the social aspect of our country. Educationally, we often put laws in place. And you and I who teach amongst our number are well aware what a great emphasis that has been and continues to be. As one gives thought to all of those things, it still is fair to say that most in respect to realistic considerations, understand that America won't remain the dominant superpower forever, that she won't remain the dominant power perpetually on and on in the future. Every great empire of the past has risen from crumbs, reached a height of superiority, power, and might, and then has waned into the dustbins of history. Few would doubt that in time America will not maintain the prowess that she currently has. I've listed two historical sequences just to give you some reflection upon that. One could turn back the clock to the Old Testament and recollect how great and mighty nations were like Persia. And she did rule practically the known world at that time. And yet, not many years thereafter, along came Alexander the Great, that great Grecian general, and he overwhelmed Persia, and for that matter, all the other parts of the known world at the time. But not only that, Greece wasn't perpetually to reign either. Finally, along came Julius Caesar and various others we recall from our studies of the Roman Empire, and Rome ruled the world for several centuries. But she too, in 476 A.D., met her doom as she also crumbled. Perhaps as one comes more closely to modern times, we might well mention that last train of events. There was a time Spain was hailed with its armada as the great and mighty empire of Europe. She, of course, would soon give way to France, and she too would give way to England. We can see that things seem to change in that regard as time passes onward. What might you and I say about the United States of America? Will its decline be precipitous? That is to say, will it be immediate and hard and violent? Or will it just gently flow somewhat lesser in power and might and still remain and maintain some degree of international prowess and power? That perhaps is a very good question. It would certainly be fair to say that neither I nor you are such that we have a crystal ball in such a way that we can pinpoint and make certainty about that which will befall our nation in the years that come. Tonight's lesson is simply to challenge and charge each of us with using what God revealed in the days of the long ago. Some thoughts that will help us appreciate how bad could it get. I would hope that each of us, as we give some thought to what is revealed to us in the book of Ezekiel, that in that study we might be led to appreciate the grandeur of the blessings we do have and to also give some thought to an inward charge and challenge to ever strive to do that which God would have us do to maintain the grandness of His blessings upon us. Perhaps with those thoughts in mind, 
I would ask you to use with me ancient Israel for the next few moments as an example. Indeed, ancient Israel, and more specifically, that southern kingdom of Judah. For in that we shall find some interesting concepts that will give us fodder for thought. And let me begin that, if I might, with a recollection with you of some of the things the Old Testament reveals about Judah. We'll start with that broader study of ancient Israel. We are reminded in Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, that God especially and particularly chose these people, those who were the descendants of Abraham through Jacob, to be the emissaries through whom he would bless the entirety of the human family. That it would be through them that the Christ child, the grandness of the one to come upon earth would one day come. As one noticed the passage of time, for that reason, that nation found itself so mightily and beautifully blessed by the God of heaven. They knew wealth virtually untold. In Second Chronicles 1 verse 15, at that stage of Israelite history, we there read that silver and gold in Jerusalem were as plentiful as rocks. Wealth indeed was so easy to come by. Solomon, as we well recall, was regarded as the wealthiest of all ancient kings. Other leaders, in fact, upon hearing about Solomon's wealth, sometimes would come just to see what things were like in Jerusalem. That was true of the Queen of Sheba, wasn't it? In particular, she had heard about his wisdom. And as she came, notice that which she was able to say when she said, not even the half has been told me. Later, we notice that even in other considerations, there was a time when Hezekiah ascended the throne. Notice that there were those who came from afar to see the richness of Hezekiah's empire. Again, they were able to say, the half hasn't been told me. You see, God mightily blessed them with wealth. That included gold and silver and brass, any number of other kinds of things that look so ornate and extravagant. Indeed, we can see a bit of similarity here for you and I live in a nation that is so wealthy by so many standards as one might choose to measure it. Certainly as we come to the time of Zephaniah, still money and wealth were readily recognized and Zephaniah warned the people not to trust in their wealth and not to trust in that aspect of money to save them. You see, that still might well be an appropriate warning for our day, isn't it? Money is not going to save us and wealth and extravagance is not going to save us. Furthermore, you might notice some other things that seem so similar. As you look at a comment near the middle of that particular screen, you'll notice as the 7th century B.C. was such that it came upon the people of Israel and Judah, we reach a time when perhaps these two comments ought to be made. They, in terms of the promises that God had made them, perhaps were feeling very secure at this point. For after all, a descendant of David was on the throne. And God had promised to that man named David that in fact such great and lasting and perpetual promises would be his. And yet by this time there still was a son of David, a descendant of his, sitting on the throne. And what's more, the temple there in Jerusalem was still standing. They had placed such high regard upon that temple and at least in their mind all had to be well. The temple is standing, and a descendant of David is ruling. What more could we want? What could happen to us? 
Aren't we absolutely secure in every fashion and in every regard? And yet as one virtually and somewhat figuratively turns the page. Now notice as we consider that latter part of the 7th century B.C., that brings us to about the time of 625 B.C. and in the years that followed it. It is to that point in time I would direct your attention because that, you see, brings us to the man named Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel consists of some 48 chapters. And as one looks through those 48 chapters, the book divides naturally into two rather large parts. And in case you might want to commit that to memory, it divides exactly at the halfway point in terms of chapter number. The first 24 chapters fall in one section. The last 24 fall in another. Those first 24 chapters are such that they begin with three chapters of introduction in which we find the call of Ezekiel, God's commission and challenge to him to prophesy to the people. And then from chapters 4 to 24, we encounter one prophecy after another. These prophecies are some of the bleakest, some of the most vivid, some of the most dramatic, and some of the most heart-wrenching to be found anywhere in the Old Testament. One can't mistake what God called Ezekiel to prophesy. Tonight we will look at but one very, very short section in chapters 4 and 5, and that will be it. If you have opportunity to read the first 24 chapters of the book, be prepared. Some of it is rather disgusting reading in a sense. But as we read the book of God, remember God's just telling the truth. Some of the things that you and I will find the people of God doing is absolutely sickening. And some of the things that we find them engaging in is not only disgusting, it is such that we find God directly telling them, this is what's going to happen to you. Because look at what you've done. Look at what has happened. It is with thoughts like that in mind that we reach the fourth and fifth chapters of the book. And in the concourse of those studies, notice with me some of the things that God foretold. We won't read all of those two chapters, but I have attempted to draw your attention to at least a few of the highlights. As you might well remember, the book of Ezekiel is classified as one of the apocalyptic books of the Old Testament. That's a rather lengthy name, admittedly, but it simply means that what is presented is presented in symbols and in signs. It's not in narrative chronological order. In that sense, it's much like the revelation of the New Testament. Things are presented in symbols, and we have to see the truth behind the symbol. For example, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, the text reads, Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee, and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem, and lay siege against it, and build a fort against it, and cast a mount against it, set the camp also against it, and set battering rams against it round about. You and I can picture a little boy, or perhaps a little girl, who takes some Lego blocks and builds a little fort there on the coffee table in the living room. God told Ezekiel, you build a model of Jerusalem on the tile there in front of you. And not only that, you build battering rams around it, and you build a fort around it. God was symbolizing truth through that. In the verses that follow, he identified, Ezekiel, this is what's going to happen. The time is coming, though it may not look like it now. The time is coming, and an enemy army 
is going to lay siege against this city and going to come against it just like you have done on that model city there in front of you. Times are going to get bad in, in Jerusalem. A siege was going to come. Ezekiel was born in about the year 625 B.C. As the years rolled by, things looked peaceful and quiet until that Assyrian army in the north raised her head. And finally, when Nebuchadnezzar rolled in that direction with his Babylonian armies, we find that things did get really bad. In fact, notice what was to occur next. When that siege took place, food and water were going to get scarce in the city. So much so that it'll have to be rationed at first. There's not going to be much to be had. As those enemy armies would encircle the city, the thing that would befall the land was going to be devastating. So much so that as one notes, not only would the time come that there would be a rationing of the necessities of life, like water and food, you'll notice the time came that as these chapters unfold, the people would stoop to the point of consuming that which you and I would consider unthinkable. Let me point out what, what I mean by that. In chapter number 5, you'll notice in verse number 10, it reads as follows. Therefore the fathers shall eat the sons in the midst of thee, and the sons shall eat their fathers. And I will execute judgments in thee, and the whole remnant of thee will, will I scatter into all the winds. When Jerusalem came to that low ebb in her existence, we notice a reference to even cannibalism. And you'll notice that as the days would lead up to the disastrous and the very severe conditions, you'll notice in chapter 4, God said something else about the kind of matters that the people would stoop to. Beginning in verse number 10, it says, And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight. Twenty shekels a day from time to time shalt thou eat it. Thou shalt drink also water by measure the sixth part of an hen. From time to time shalt thou drink. Verse 12, And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. And the Lord said, verse 13, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their, un their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I will drive them. And perhaps we we're already gaining a feeling. Do you suppose that in roughly the year, oh, say 615, when Ezekiel was old but about 10, I wonder could the people have pondered and wondered what would happen only 10 years into the future? For you see, Nebuchadnezzar and the armies began their siege against Jerusalem in about 605 B.C. Ezekiel was the tender age of 20. And as that siege began with each passing year, it worsened. Initially, several were taken into captivity, and among them was Daniel, that lovely prophet of whom we read about in that last book of, of major prophecy. In 597 B.C., again, Nebuchadnezzar came against Jerusalem, and this time he deported Ezekiel. Here was that young man, again, at this time only about 28 years of age, taken off from his homeland to a far distant nationality amongst these foreign heathen peoples. How bad had it gotten? How bad did it get? You notice that that still wasn't as worse as it was going to get. At that point, Nebuchadnezzar hadn't been angered to the point of causing quite so much of what we had read, but in the years leading up to 586, 
the very last episode before the final destruction, it got this bad. The book of Second Kings will tell us of it. The book of Second Chronicles will join the refrain as well. The book of Jeremiah joins in that as well. Friends, notice, not many years before, it had not been that bad. In fact, they had enjoyed peace, prosperity, and wealth. But now it was all gone. It was all gone. They had now stooped to the point of having lost virtually everything. And finally, in 586, when Nebuchadnezzar destroyed the city, he ransacked and burned it. He destroyed the temple and razed it to the ground. That cherished temple in which they had placed so much trust was now no more. I say all of that to help us see that notice how bad it had gotten. As you and I just contemplate, maybe not many years before, it had never seen that it would come to that. As you reach near the bottom of that, God has something else to share with them in the last two verses of Ezekiel chapter 5. I'd ask you to read that as I, and follow along as I read it. It says, When I shall send upon them the evil arrows of famine, which shall be for their destruction, and which I will send to destroy you, and I will increase the famine upon you, and I will break your staff of bread. So will I send upon you famine and evil beasts, and they shall bereave thee, and pestilence and blood shall pass through thee, and I will bring the sword upon thee. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Might you notice, pestilence and death were going to be the lot of what was to come Jerusalem's way. In light of all those things, where do we go from here? Why did this happen? And in what way did it come about? I have some thoughts, again, taken primarily from these statements by God himself in Ezekiel that you and I might well take to heart. In the reading that was read earlier tonight from Ezekiel 5, Notice again the statement that begins in verse 5. Thus saith the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. Safe it is to say that God in His choice of the chosen people and in the selection of Jerusalem, she should have been the bright beacon for godliness and holiness for all the world to see. She should have been the one to which others could look and see the ever-present power and majesty of the God whom she served. You'll notice verse 5 does begin by saying this is Jerusalem. If you and I didn't know better in the verses that followed, we would have thought he was talking about some foreign place like Damascus or perhaps like Shushan or perhaps some other foreign place. But God says, no, this is Jerusalem I'm talking about. This is the nation that should have known me. And yet in verse 6, what has she done? She has changed my judgments into wickedness more than the nations. She has changed my judgments into wickedness. What she should have appreciated as being just, holy, and right, as being the statutes of good versus evil, she has changed that which was righteous into that which is wicked. God wasn't going to ignore that. And you'll notice in the text I have placed there, I've asked the question, does that sound like today? And I raise that question only to challenge us to ponder, do we find the human family today, and specifically our nation, taking that which is a righteous judgment and what was considered so perhaps at some former day, and now proclaiming with straight face 
that it is no longer that way? In Isaiah 5, verse 20, there were those in that particular day that called good evil and evil good. May you and I be careful and not allow ourselves to fall into that because notice how bad did it get? It got bad enough to be that which we've described from Ezekiel 4 and 5. As you give some thought to what else was described, you'll notice in verse 6, it says, My statutes more than the countries that are round about her. For they have refused my judgments and my statutes. They have not walked therein. God straightforwardly asserted they do not walk in my ways any longer. They have refused. Does that sound like today? A class or group of people who no longer esteems the Holy Scriptures for what they are. Who is so readily willing to claim them to be less than that. Or perhaps not even that at all. In Jeremiah 6, verse 16, we have one of the most penetrating and piercing texts, it seems to me, anywhere in the opening chapters of Jeremiah. Listen again as God warns that prophet, who, by the way, was a basic contemporary of Ezekiel. He was prophesying to the same stubborn, rebellious people. On that occasion, he said, Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see, and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein and you shall find rest for your souls. That's a lovely passage in a way to that point. I haven't finished the verse, but notice he says, walk in the old paths. What was the right way? What was the retort of the people as that verse closed? The last sentence in it again in Jeremiah 6 verse 16, and they said, we will not walk therein. You see, they no longer were interested in the things of God. The old ways were obsolete ways. The old ways were old-fashioned. That's for a class of people that aren't educated and don't know any better. God says it's the old ways or the good ways. And when we appreciate what happened to the, the people of Ezekiel's day, how far they fell, and what, before, what had come to be their lot, doesn't it remind us to be cautious and to ever understand the third thing also. We notice in the next verse, in verse 7 of Ezekiel 5, Thus saith the Lord God, Because ye multiplied more than the nations that are round about you, and have not walked in my statutes, neither have kept my judgments, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations that are round about you. You'll notice that God even asserted that his people were behaving more wickedly than even the surrounding heathen pagan nations. Isn't that shocking? They had a higher estimation of ethics and morality than God's people. Maybe there was a time when in our nation we were highly regarded by all as a Christian nationality. A people who had a basic element of ethnicity and morality. I strongly suspect it's not quite so much that way anymore. To say all of those things reminds us of Deuteronomy 30, doesn't it? When even and when Moses was still alive, he warned them and cautioned them and instilled within them the thought then that as you appreciate that which is right and the judgments to follow, it is always God's judgments. It is always His way. For His way is the right way. It's the noble way. And it's the way that leads to life. 
In fact, a verse prior to that one that, that I noted in Deuteronomy 30.16, namely in Deuteronomy 30.15, God set before the people this mighty challenge. He said, choose you this day. There's life and there's death that I've set before you, but the choice is yours. He urged them, Moses did, choose life and choose blessing and choose the way that's good. In the verses that followed, specifically in the 32nd chapter, it seems that virtually with a tear in his eye, Moses prophesied before he died, I know what's going to happen. You're going to turn from the God that brought you here. You're going to turn away from him that led you out of Egypt and across the Red Sea, that gave you his laws at Sinai and promised you a nation and a place of health and goodness if you'd follow him. I know you're going to turn from him. When Moses spoke that, what a true prophet he was. You'll notice one final thing that I've listed for your consideration in verse 11. What else had these people done? Verse 11 of Ezekiel 5 reads as follows. Wherefore, as I live, saith the Lord God, surely because thou hast defiled my sanctuary with all thy detestable things and with all thine abominations, therefore will I also diminish thee. Neither shall mine eye spare, neither will I have pity. One of the things, and perhaps it's worthy of a far more involved study than these few moments that we'll devote to it, they had in fact begun to do detestable things in the temple. It no longer was the wholesome, spiritual worship of God in truth that it ought to have been. They were now doing abominable, detestable things in the temple and claiming it was worship. Does that sound anything like today when things go on in church buildings and so-called places in which worship is supposed to occur that God would find detestable, things he would find abominable, and things for which he says, mine eye will not overlook it and mine eye will not pity, have pity to it either. If that sounds like today, then perhaps we should recognize how bad could it get? How bad did it get for them? The lesson, I suppose, that's to be found in this is not that difficult to see. Everyone here is no doubt appreciated, and let us all recognize that this hasn't been delivered to scare us. I simply have intended to let God speak through Ezekiel a word of challenge and warning to all of us to not become complacent, to not become indifferent to our spiritual life, and not to become a person who's not filled with gratitude for the greatness of his blessings to us in the here and now. But I would submit that if, if in our land we come to be like they were, I noted earlier that we are still recognized as the superpower of the planet. How long will that last? If the pendulum continues to swing, it would seem in the way that it is. One can't help but wonder how bad could it get. May you and I be challenged day after day and moment by moment to do the following things. First of all, to personally and individually be committed to a life of absolute honesty, godliness, and righteousness. It begins with you and me individually. Because with you and with me, it go, then goes then to my family and yours. And from there to your co-workers or your community and mine. And from there to the individuals in this county, Putnam County and Jackson County, Tennessee, when it begins there, it can have marvelous impact even far beyond. 
It's no wonder in light of all this, Hosea said in Hosea 10, 12, Break up your fallow ground. It's time to seek the Lord. You see, the people of Israel needed to hear it in that day, didn't they? It's time to seek the Lord. Furthermore, we notice in Zephaniah 2, verse 3, another prophet that labored contemporaneously with Jeremiah. We find even Zephaniah lifting high the banner of personal righteousness, living rightly and honestly before the God of heaven. Jesus joined in that chorus so wonderfully in Matthew 6.33 when he there asserted, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and what? His righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. Later in the New Testament, we well remember Titus. As Paul told him, in fact, words that sound so very similar. He began by making reference to the grace of God, but then he said, Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly righteously and godly in this present world. We still are challenged, aren't we, to live in a way not like these folks in Ezekiel's day. They had stooped far, far away from God. And for that, they were going to soon learn how bad it would get. If you and I will cling closely to God, personally, devotedly, and with great commitment serving Him, that brings us to note what should then come of our nation. In Psalm 9, verse 17, we read of a rather dramatic warning given through the psalmist to any nation that forgets God. And in the words of that verse, it reads as follows, that any nation that forgets God shall be turned into hell. Oh, may we never as a nation forget God. May we, in fact, strive to have officials at all levels who have a respect for the God of heaven, an appreciation for His Word, and an understanding of the great responsibility that rests upon their shoulders. Furthermore, in, in Proverbs 14.34, we read there that, in fact, what is it that exalts a nation? We listed earlier things like military might and gross national product social considerations, and even those matters related to education. One can't deny that all of that in its rightful place will follow. But the most important thing still by far is this. Righteousness exalted the nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. Indeed, sin did become a reproach to the people of Israel. God's own people were turned into Babylon to captivity. They did learn their lesson, fortunately, and when they did come forth by way of a second exodus, if you please, from Babylonian captivity, they did become that people through whom the Christ child was born. Tonight, as you and I come to this point in our lesson, may we each be thankful for the blessings we do have, for truly they are many. But in addition, may we be ever mindful and ever cognizant of the great responsibility that does rest for future considerations of our land, because how bad could it get? It could get really, really bad. None of us would want our children or our grandchildren or great-grandchildren to experience that. And so now is the time to ward it off by instilling righteousness within ourselves and in them so that they know the truth and have a desire to impact all whom they know to follow it lovingly, powerfully, and daily. And so at this point tonight, may I submit the lesson is all of us. Sometimes there are those who would say the lesson is yours. It's every bit as much mine as yours tonight as we each have the duty laid upon us. This evening, if you're not a Christian, 
You need to place your spirit, your immortal spirit, in the hands of the one who can care for it and who will lead it to everlasting life. Men can't do that. Presidents, kings, princes, provinces, and officials are utterly incapable of that. But if you allow Jesus to be the one to lead you in the words of John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. If we could assist you in your initial obedience to the gospel, it involves belief, repentance, confession, and baptism. If you have become a Christian but no longer are faithful and true, come back to that first love tonight, won't you? God loves you. We do here at Pippin, and we want you to have a spiritual journey through life that is based on the truth of God. If we could help you tonight in either of those ways, won't you let it be known while together we stand and while we sing.